0: Welcome to Two Way Street. We're going to devote our show today to looking at the work of one of Georgia's literary giants, Carson McCullers. She was born in Columbus in 1917. Her father ran a jewelry store. Her mother's chief occupation always seemed to be doting upon and caring for her sickly daughter, Carson. Although she initially wanted to become a musician, McCullers began writing stories as a teenager. She found the South oppressive, the stifling heat, the sweet, slightly claustrophobic scent of magnolias, the narrow-mindedness of many of her neighbors. And so she escaped to New York City in the mid-1930s. But it was the South she wrote about in her books, essays, and stories. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, The Member of the Wedding, her most famous works, all were set in the South. Because she struggled with rheumatic fever and other crippling illnesses, and because she always had questions about her gender identity, she saw herself as a misfit, an outsider. And so finding connections, finding love and kindness among her fellow human beings was a paramount concern in her personal life and a theme that dominates much of her writing. McCullers gives us a fascinating glimpse of her sense of isolation in a filmed interview conducted while she was on board a ship steaming to Europe shortly after the stage production of her novel, Member of the Wedding, began on Broadway.
1: Carson McCullers, you'll remember her widely acclaimed play. As a matter of fact, it won many
2: awards, a member of the wedding. And Mrs. McCullers was a member of the wedding, your first major dramatic effort.
0: Yes, yes, it was the first play I'd
2: ever... But before on. that, you had many uh, novels that were pretty widely accepted.
0: Yes, I've, I've written a number of novels.
2: Actually, a member of the wedding was
1: uh, written originally in book form, wasn't it? Yes, it was a book, uh-huh, and, and I adopted it myself for the
0: theater.
2: That probably was a job in itself or by itself. It was lots of fun, as a matter of fact. I never worked
0: with people before. I never worked with people before. It's a melancholy image, but we learned that McCullers found the collaborative process of working on a play to be a joyous experience. We're going to talk about McCullers with one of the foremost authorities on her life and work, Carlos Dews. He's the editor of McCullers, Stories, Plays, and Other Writings. Dews has a long history of working on McCullers' writings. He was the founding director of the Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians at Columbus State University, and he became the editor of her unfinished autobiography Illumination and Night Glare, which he based on the notes she'd written for a book she had planned to write about her own life. We first aired our conversation in February 2017. As we began, I asked Dews about something Tennessee Williams once said about his good friend Carson. Carson's heart was often lonely, and it was a tireless hunter for those to whom she could offer it, but it was a heart that was graced with light that eclipsed its shadows. Talk about what her friend, you you certainly know that quote, talk about, help us understand what Tennessee Williams was saying about her.
2: Well, perhaps more than uh, any other American writer during the 20th century, uh, Carson's most recurrent theme was the idea that uh, we're all alone in the end as as human beings, and she talked about spiritual isolation was her, uh, was her major theme, and I think that's what Tennessee is getting at there, that she was haunted in a way by loneliness throughout her entire life. Um, she never really had uh, a great significant uh, long-term relationship in her life, even though she was married to Reeves McCullers for, uh, for quite a few years. And she always had this quest for a really deep, significant connection with people. And if you look at the characters in her work, they're all striving for that uh, same thing. They're all looking for this deep, intimate uh, connection with someone that will give them a sense that they've sort of finally made it. They've uh, finally achieved a deep connection with someone that uh, will endure. And on a more philosophical level, less, less personal level... I think she thought uh, all human beings sort of uh, exist in that state, and that's why she wanted
0: to address it so much in her work. Well, she, so, so let's go back on that, because uh, even from a very early age, we understand why she would identify with the kind of people you're talking about. She was born Lula Carson Smith in Columbus, Georgia, in 1917. And, and she later said uh, that, by the time I was six, I was sure I'd been born a man, she, from very early on, uh, was uh, struggling with trying to understand her gender identity and her, sexual, uh, and her sexuality as well, yes?
2: hmm yes, um, you know, partially she was given the space to even entertain that idea uh, from her mother, who gave her a very wide birth her entire life, and in some ways treated her more as a friend than a daughter. Um, And because of that, I think even though she was living in, you know, the very conservative place of uh, Columbus, Georgia in the early 20th century, she sort of had the space, the intellectual space, to even entertain these ideas about sexuality and and gender long before before their time. Um, And uh, I often say when people ask me about her sexuality that the gender of the person uh, with whom she fell in love was completely irrelevant to her, because if you look in the course of her life, she fell in love with uh, uh, men and women, and she very often fell in love with couples, because she, and you know her work, uh, The Member of the Wedding um, addresses that, in that there was something very attractive about a couple that was already together. She was sort of envious and attracted to uh, the kind
0: of uh, connection that people had, and, and wanted to have that herself. Having understood from a pretty early age that she was different in some ways, and I don't think we can understate the fact that here she was in Columbus, Georgia, in the, say, 1920s, struggling with understanding whether she was gay or straight, whether she was, in fact, a man, uh, the community around her uh, was not, I mean, Her family may have been uh, helpful in her trying to cope with that, but certainly the community around her was not welcoming of that sort of thinking. That's right. And, you know, she was raised in the Baptist
2: Church. She went to the First Baptist Church of Columbus and was involved in the youth group even there. Um, but... She fled Columbus and Georgia as soon as she was able. I mean, as soon as she was uh, able to, uh, to go to college or leave, uh, first to study music, but ultimately to study writing in New York, she uh, seized the opportunity and, and fled, and came back for very short periods only for the rest of her life. And then when her father died uh, toward the end of World War II, She and her mother, uh, her mother joined her in New York and eventually her sister uh, Rita did as well. And the whole family ended up living in uh, just outside of New York for the rest of Carson's life. And that idea of, this is also something that's recurrent in her work, is that her characters are often looking for, in addition to a relationship, they're also looking for the sort of perfect place for them. They're... uh, looking for this uh, place they can escape to from their current situation to this place where they'll be accepted and loved
0: and understood. And New York for Carson was very much uh, that place. Yeah. Let's continue with this theme of of her interest in uh, people who are different. When she was 19, she published a story that's, of course, included in your uh, uh, new collection called uh, Mm Wunderkind. And what's interesting to me about that, Carlos, is it's It's a story about a young student of violin and her Jewish violin teacher. Um, And in the story, tell me if I've got this right, the student wonders why the Jewish teacher is capable of playing violin with a passion she simply cannot. Uh, And it begins kind of her exploration of uh, people who are different with uh, uh, Jews with African-Americans, with people who were physically disabled, with uh, gays and lesbians. That story really begins her journey of dealing with these people living in the world differently than the rest of us. The people that she met via Mary Tucker in the sort of very
2: small classical music world of Columbus at the time, these were the people who were different and who were already different from the sort of mainstream culture at the time. Um, most importantly was Edwin Peacock, a man from southern Georgia who was... Um, Uh, in the WPA, one of the the Depression-era programs that was uh, operating at the time at Fort Benning, who was maybe the first sort of openly gay man that she ever knew, um, who remained a lifelong friend. Uh, They were friends until she died in 1967. But it was this coming together of music, writing, and this sort of other world, these people who were different and were accepted or at least had accepted themselves as different, all came together in that story. And you're right. It's very early in her, uh, in her writing life, but it really points us in the direction that her, write, her uh, work would cover for the rest of
0: her life. So she comes out of the literary scene. She really bursts on the scene in uh, 1940, I, I think, when uh, Heart right. is a Lonely Hunter is published. It opens like this. In the town, there were two mutes, and they were always together. Early every morning they would come out from the house where they lived and walk arm-in-arm down the street to work.
1: In the town there were two mutes and they were always together. Early every morning they would come out from the house where they lived and walk arm-in-arm down the street to work. The two friends were very different. The one who always steered the way was an obese and dreamy Greek. In the summer he would come out wearing a yellow or green polo shirt, stuffed sloppily into his trousers in front and hanging loose behind. When it was colder, he wore over this a shapeless gray sweater. His face was round and oily, with half-closed eyelids and lips that curved in a gentle, stupid smile. The other mute was tall. His eyes had a quick, intelligent expression. He was always immaculate, and very soberly dressed. Every morning, the two friends walked silently together until they reached the main street of the town. Then, when they came to a certain fruit and candy store, they paused for a moment on the sidewalk outside. The Greek, Spiros Antonopoulos, worked for his cousin who owned this fruit store. His job was to make candies and sweets, uncrate the fruits, and to keep the place clean. The thin mute, John Singer nearly always put his hand on his friend's arm and looked for a second into his face before leaving him. Then, after this goodbye, Singer crossed the street and walked on alone to the jewelry store where he worked as a silverware engraver. In the dusk, the two mutes walked slowly home together. At home, Singer was always talking to Antonopoulos. His hands shaped the words in a swift series of designs. His face was eager, and his gray-green eyes sparkled brightly. With his thin, strong hands, he talked to Antonopoulos about all that happened during the day.
0: Most of us are familiar with uh, the story uh, through, of course, the, the movie. Tell us a little bit about Heart is a Lonely Hunter and how it fits into Carson McCullough's uh, life and career
2: well it's um in some ways her most important book not only because you know she wrote it when she was so young it was between the time she was 19 and 21 uh, when she uh when she finished the book um and anyone reading it uh who doesn't know her age and then learns how old she was when she wrote it, is always surprised because it's an incredibly mature book and a very wise book for someone that young uh, to write and has lots of insight into human nature and the relationships between people um, that is really surprising for someone that age to have, uh, to have had. Um, it's important because it sort of sets the, the major themes or the, the motifs for the rest of, of her work all of the characters in the book are in search of um, a connection with something greater than themselves. This relationship that you uh, point out in the opening lines of the book is an example that will come back in her work, which are these unlikely couples, these people who find themselves connected with one another uh, unusually, and that anybody objectively looking at them would never imagine them uh, together. They're very different people. They're uh, coming from different places. But there's this thing called love that exists between them. It explains uh, the connection. But that only people who've experienced it could understand uh, how that uh, that could work. And that idea, and that's the solution. That's the antidote to this problem, this loneliness that she thinks everyone suffers from. Um, and she just wanted to... Uh,
0: exemplify that as often as possible in her work. The main character, the protagonist, John Singer, the deaf mute, he becomes, despite his inability to speak or to hear, he becomes uh, the person who a, a group of misfits in the town each turn to for some kind of solace, some sort of connection, and and it really does reinforce uh Carson McCullers' lifelong theme of uh, people, as you say, lonely looking for a place to belong.
2: That's right. And it also reinforces an idea that comes out in one of her later books, The Battle of the Sad Café, which is that the, the love connection between two people, it's the person who's doing the loving, not the person who's being beloved, or beloved, as she, uh, as she writes, who determines the nature of, of the love. Uh, because those people have that connection with John Singer um, because they're projecting what they need onto him. It has really nothing to do with him because he's mute and they have really no interaction with him and don't know anything about him. Uh, but it's, you know, it's quite Freudian in a way, um, this idea of projecting onto someone what you need them to be and then responding to them
0: as if they were that. Um, that's what she's doing uh, with that character. She took the title from a poem by a, a, po- a Scottish uh, poet, uh, Fiona MacLeod. Mm-hmm. I want to read it, uh, that part of the poem to you and, and get you to respond. The third verse is this. Green wind from the green gold branches, what is the song you bring? What are all songs for me now who no more care to sing? Deep in the heart of summer, sweet is life to me still, but my heart is a lonely hunter that hunts on a lonely hill. That says a lot, not just about that, that great story, but about her life. Mm-hmm.
2: It does, and ironically, she didn't select that as the title of the. She didn't of wow. the novel. It was recommended to her by her editor at Houghton Mifflin, who is a man named Robert Linscott. But I think he realized, and this was the only work of hers that he had seen when he uh, found that title. Her original title for the book was *The Mute*. Um, and uh, he suggested it, but I think he even realized that early, having only seen this one manuscript, that that was going to be the thing that obsessed Carson uh, the most and would recur in her other work. And uh, I think we're really lucky that he came upon that, uh, that poem and su- convinced her to, uh, to use it as, as the title. Because it really does, it, it describes her and it describes the things that she was most concerned with in her work.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on Georgia literary giant Carson McCullers with our guest, Carlos Dews. Welcome back to Two Way Street. We're talking today about Carson McCullers, who was born in Columbus, Georgia, but who abandoned the South for New York City as a young writer. Nevertheless, all of her work was set in the South, including her best-known novels, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, and The Member of the Wedding. We're talking about her life and work with Carlos Dues. He's the editor of a new anthology, McCullers' stories, plays, and other writings. I think she was 20 when she married Reeves McCuller, but it was within three, mm-hmm. within three years uh, they were divorced. They remarried later. Um, th- that relationship was. I don't know if troubled is the right word, but they certainly never quite found in each other, I think it's fair to say, the sort of comfort, solace, and uh, escape from loneliness that she at least may have been looking for. Is that fair? I think it is, and
2: I think troubled isn't a bad word uh, to use to describe uh, their relationship. In many ways, I think um, they would have been far better siblings uh, than they were as husband and, and wife. I think um, they had very strong feelings toward uh, each other at the very beginning of their relationship, but they realized that they were too similar. They both needed that other half to fulfill them, and they weren't that for each other. And so they were both looking for the same thing, in the same way that her relationship— it's very similar to her relationship with Tennessee Williams, but it wasn't complicated with sexuality because Tennessee Williams was gay and Carson was— perhaps bisexual might be the term uh, we, we could use. So there wasn't a sort of romantic aspect to their relationship which allowed them to have that sort of more sibling-like relationship. But she and Reeves were looking for the same thing, but ironically and tragically couldn't provide that uh, to each other.
0: And so they continued to look outside uh, for that even when they were together. And, and eventually there is a truly tragic ending to that story. They have gone to Paris... She's been living in Paris, and Reeves comes to her and suggests they have a suicide pact, yes? That's right. And in fact, he was
2: prepared for them to do that at that moment. They were in a car driving from the small town they lived in. They had bought a house outside of uh, Paris, and they were in the car— and uh, according to one recounting of the story that Carson gave, uh, he had the rope, he wanted them to uh, to hang themselves together. And he, in fact, had the rope, and she fled from the car, and it was the last time she ever uh, ever saw Reeves. Because he follows through. He did. And does a short time later, later, after she returns to the U.S., a short time later, he does uh, kill himself in a hotel in Paris. She, she doesn't recognize what I think I see was the difficulty, which is often the case. I have objectivity that she wasn't able to, uh, to have in, in seeing it. She attributes the difficulty with the fact that Reeves uh, had very serious fundamental emotional psychological problems from the very beginning, and that that, that's what prevented them from having the relationship uh, that they had hoped for. I can give you an example. Um, When they first got married, because Reeves wanted to be a writer as well, and uh, when they got together, they had a pact that they would trade off, that he would work and she would write for a while, then she would work, and he would write for a while, and uh, she got the first turn at writing, and this was during the depths of the Great Depression, and he got a job as a debt collector, which is a very <laughs> tough job to imagine doing during the Great Depression, um, and he took his turn working while she wrote uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Uh, and then immediately when it was published, she became so success- successful that you know the idea of her you know, writing or or getting a job or doing something while he took a term at writing sort of didn't seem to fit anymore. Um, although of course, you know, he, they were, they were still together and he had opportunities to write, but when he sat down to write, he was never able to, and this is the biggest difference between the, the two of them. Carson had a work ethic and was able to, despite her health problems and despite, um, how much she was sort of enjoying life in New York when they first moved there, she was able to settle down and actually get the work done. And when he tried, he was never able to do that. And I think he, um, had a predisposition for suicidal depression because he's not the only one of his siblings. There were a large number of siblings in the family and almost all of them eventually committed suicide. So I think think there was something uh, uh, genetically um, problematic in that family and almost all of them killed themselves before they were 30. Um, So it's very uh, tragic. So I think she was right that there was something you know, some difficulties that he had outside of their relationship that, uh, into that. I can tell you a brief anecdote that um, David Diamond, the American composer, uh, who was friends with both Carson and Reeves, and in fact they had a bit of a three-way relationship for a while, uh, but then Reeves left Carson and went to, to move in with David, which is one of the great sort of betrayals of her life that gave her the idea for the Ballad of the Sad Café, in fact, But when when Reeves was living with David in Rochester, New York, because David was a a composition professor at the Eastman School of Music, um, he set up a a sort of writing studio for Reeves in the attic so that Reeves could at last have the the time um, to do his own writing. And uh, David said that one day he came home from work um, at uh, Rochester at the uh, Eastman School and went up to check on Reeves to see what he had uh, been writing that day. And when he got up to this attic studio, Reeves was sitting at the desk and he had taken all the pages that he had written that day and had torn them into little tiny pieces and was sitting there with a bottle of scotch and was eating the pages that he had typed on that day and chasing them with, uh, with shots of
0: whiskey." You just sort of sent a chill uh, through me. <laughs> it's a chilling story. First, Well, the story itself is chilling, but also the fact that that three-way relationship was uh, in some ways responsible for what I personally think is one of the most powerful novellas uh, I've ever read, which is The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, which has also been not only a, a novella, but it's also been uh, turned into a stage production. I've seen a production of it, and it's incredibly Powerful. Um, to the story of Amelia, it's a three way story. Amelia Evans. Who is Amelia Evans? Well, in some ways,
2: she's the, you know, it's, it's, it's told as a sort of myth, uh, the way uh, the story is written. It's, it's, you know, like a traditional ballad. But it's, uh, it's simply a represent, an external representation of, I think, how Carson perceived herself. Um, she had a self-consciousness about how tall she was, about the way she looked, and I think she projected that onto this character, Miss Amelia. And of course, Cousin Lyman, the, co- the, the character Cousin Lyman, was uh, David Diamond, and Marvin Macy, uh, the criminal, is uh,
0: her treatment of Reeves McCullers at the time. So Amelia is the operator of a rather unsuccessful business in a small southern town, and cover- Cousin Lyman who is a hunchback, a cripple, uh, comes to town and sets in motion uh, this uh, remarkable story of betrayal. Tell us a little Mm -hmm. about it.
2: Well, even before uh, Cousin Lyman arrives uh, and convinces her to convert her uh, general store into a cafe, she had been married very briefly to uh, Marvin Macy. um, And his love for her had changed him completely. Uh, He had been a a sort of... uh, well, he had been the biggest problem that town had. He was always seducing the young girls in the town and causing all kinds of trouble. But his love for her had converted him into a sort of upstanding citizen. Uh, they married, and then on their wedding night, she kicked him out of the house, rejecting his sexual advances on their on their wedding night. Because of that, he becomes a criminal and is sent to prison. So when the when the novel opens and Cousin Lyman arrives, uh, this is has already transpired in the past. So when he arrives, Cousin Lyman uh, sparks something in Miss Amelia because Miss Amelia never had love for Marvin Macy. She just took advantage of his love um, to uh, to get things from him. Uh, Cousin Lyman sparks something in, uh, in uh, Miss Amelia and she completely changes. And she's always been this very distant person and she opens this cafe that becomes the center of this community and the only joy this community has ever uh, had. It's a small mill town Very much like a small town that would be on the Chattahoochee um, near Columbus, where Carson grew up in Alabama or uh, Georgia. There, Uh, and the nature of their relationship is never really explained, but it's a very clear loving relationship um, with uh, Miss Amelia as the lover and uh, Cousin Lyman as the beloved. And uh, Marvin Macy is released from prison and comes back to get his revenge on uh, on her. And the way he gets his revenge on her not only by fighting. There's a big long drawn-out fight scene between the two of them but he hurts her most by taking cousin Lyman away because when cousin Lyman sees Marvin Macy for the first time he has the strong response uh, of attraction to Marvin Macy that Marvin Macy had had toward uh, uh, Miss Amelia and that Miss Amelia had had toward cousin Lyman so it makes the triangle perfect uh, and he takes uh, he takes cousin Lyman away with him and um, the rest of her life Miss Amelia locks herself in the store, closes the cafe, locks herself inside the store, and spends the rest of her life there um, wondering whatever happened to uh, Marvin Macy and Cousin Lyman, who left her behind.
0: Uh, yeah, a really, really sad story. I mean, even the opening lines of the Bell, to the Sad Cafe tell us what a gloomy story this is going to be. The, the town itself is dreary. Not much is there except the cotton mill, the two-room houses where the workers live, A few peach trees, a church with two colored windows and a miserable main street only a hundred yards long.
1: If you walk along the main street on an August afternoon, there is nothing whatsoever to do. The largest building in the very center of town is boarded up completely and leans so far to the right that it seems bound to collapse at any minute. The house is very old. There is about it a curious, cracked look that is very puzzling, until you suddenly realize that at one time, and long ago, the right side of the front porch had been painted, and part of the wall. But the painting was left unfinished, and one portion of the house is darker and dingier than the other. The building looks completely deserted. Nevertheless, on the second floor there is one window which is not boarded, Sometimes, in the late afternoon, when the heat is at its worst, a hand will slowly open the shutter, and a face will look down on the town. It is a face like the terrible, dim faces known in dreams, sexless and white, with two gray-crossed eyes, which are turned inward so sharply that they seem to be exchanging with each other one long and secret gaze of grief. The face lingers at the window for an hour or so. Then the shutters are closed once more. And as likely as not, there will not be another soul to be seen along the main street. These August afternoons, when your shift is finished, there is absolutely nothing to do. You might as well walk down to the Forks Fall Road and listen to the chain gang.
0: This is not the setting for a joyful story. (laughs) No, it's not. And the story opens, the
2: the section you're reading, the opening words, are when it's depicting the time when Miss Amelia is uh, locked up inside the store and it's closed and it used to be a cafe. Then the story jumps back to pick up and uh, tell us what led to her uh, being in that way.
0: Do do you think, Carlos, that uh, the description of that town is in some ways the way Carson McCullers saw the small towns of the South, or do you think it's just particular to this story? No, I think it, it very much sort
2: of encapsul- encapsulates this ideas she had of how restrictive and oppressive and uncultured and backwards and conservative, I'm trying to think of all these negative words I could use, um, for the small towns. The town in, the, in the, the novel is a condensation, and it's a much smaller town than Columbus was. I mean, Columbus was a decent-sized uh, city at the time, uh, and you know, it was a very commercial city and, and uh, had lots of commercial activity. But, no, I, I, I think she was trying to represent... Um, what uh, H.L. Mencken described as the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts when he described the South. uh, And so she was trying to pick that as well because I think she agreed with Mencken completely
0: uh, when he said that. She wrote most of her work obviously in New York City after fleeing the South, wanting to escape the South. It doesn't surprise me at
2: all that most of her work, almost exclusively all of her work is set in the South. Um, it doesn't surprise me because of this profound effect that the, the South had on her. It was just in her blood. Uh, it would have been very difficult for her to divorce herself from that background and that past, especially when it had so negatively affected her. Uh, it stuck with her, even uh, though she fled to the North as soon as she uh, could and spent the rest of her life outside of the South. Um, so I, you know, she had great ambivalence toward the South. She felt very indebted to it, but at the same time, uh, she never
0: stopped hating it. Quite different, I think, than the other great Southern writer of the day, Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. who embraced the South throughout her career. Right. Although I don't think it's a fair
2: case because Flannery O'Connor you know, also died at a fairly young age. And because yes. of her medical problems, I don't know if she had been able to be independent if she would have necessarily uh, stayed, uh, stayed in the South. The better example is Eudora Welty. Who is you know born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, and Mississippi, and spent her entire life there except for a brief time, you know, when she uh, was uh, studying. She remained in the South, and I think the explanation, I think gender and sexuality may explain the biggest difference between the the two of them. That I think Eudora Welty felt comfortable in her Southern skin because I don't think she felt herself except for maybe politically, that much of an outsider from the South, whereas Carson felt rejected by the South and unaccepted by the South and had to flee uh,
0: to find comfort uh, someplace else. Well, I I was fascinated by the fact, as I looked into her life a little more, that when she was in New York, uh, after she divorced, she went to live in a Brooklyn house with a remarkable group of uh, artists. I mean, W.H. Auden, Mm -hmm. I think, was part of that. Gypsy Rose Uh, Lee and... uh, Yeah, the the British composer uh, Benjamin Britten
2: and his partner Britain. Peter Pears. Uh, no, and George Davis, who was sort of the founder of the house, who was a magazine editor and, and novelist as well.
0: You talked about Gypsy Rose Lee, and there's a fascinating question about her relationship with Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, some have suggested they may have had a sexual relationship. Others contend that uh, Carson McCullers never, ever consummated any relationship with a woman. Yes?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I... Uh, you know, I've read a lot of of manuscript materials and things, both letters and uh, uh, Carson's occasional writings that have never been uh, published, and so I, I have a slightly different take on that. If you read the published record, you wouldn't have any convincing evidence that she had had a physical relationship with any women. But if you read the more occasional things and in some letters and things that she wrote, uh, if you believe what she wrote, and she was you know, famous for being quite a fabulist and making things up uh, for
0: effect. Um, I think that she and Gypsy Rose Lee did have a physical relationship. I I do want to go back and talk about her in Georgia just a little bit, because you include in this uh, collection a wonderful essay called The Great Eaters of Georgia. She does make clear in that essay when she comes back. At what point does she come back to Georgia and write this essay? Where is she in her life at this moment? Well,
2: she she had continued to return periodically because, you know, her mother had uh, had sisters uh, and and brothers still in Columbus and other places in the South, including Macon, Georgia and she had a cousin who lived in uh in Macon and she liked to come back and visit him she had friends in in uh, uh Charleston uh Atlanta so she would periodically uh uh come back to the south she never lived in the south again after she and reeves moved in 1940 to uh to New York um, but this piece was um when she was well established this was in the 1950s and holiday magazine uh which was you know, essentially a travel magazine uh ask her if she would return to the South and write a piece uh, about it, and it was a point in her career when she was having a lot of medical problems and things, and she wasn't particularly focused, and I don't think she understood what they were looking for, Um, and she just sort of ruminated on everything having to do uh, with the South, and the biggest section that remains in this manuscript uh, had to do with food. Uh, she submitted a manuscript to uh, Holiday magazine. It was very critical of the South regarding uh, the civil rights movement and what was going on in the Jim Crow uh, South at the time. Um, she did write about food and some cultural practices, but she couldn't keep herself from uh, writing about sort of political things. And I don't think that's what Holly, Holiday magazine was uh, commissioning her to write about. Um, so she submitted it to them, and they rejected it and paid her, you know, the kill fee for the uh, for the piece, but it was never published. And then many years later, I found the manuscript at the University of Texas. Uh, The University of Texas owns the bulk of Carson's papers. And I found it there and worked with the editors of the Oxford American magazine to sort of uh, glean—they were doing a food issue, and since there was a bulk of the piece was about uh, food uh, ways in the South, we edited uh, Carson's rough manuscript, uh, selecting the pieces
0: primarily having to do with with food. You know, one of the things I find very amusing, Carlos, is— She says at one point in the essay, to Georgians, Thanksgiving and Christmas always mean fruitcake.
1: Every city has its special smell, and the smell of savannah is unmistakable. It is a smell of a seacoast town. The salt smell is mixed with the sweetness of gardenias. The clear artesian water gives the smell of the city a hint of sulfur. And there are the smells of the wares of the vendors. All day, the Geechee Negro hucksters sing out their wares in songs unintelligible to all but Savanians. They carry great black baskets of fish, vegetables, and flowers balanced on their heads. In this respect, Savannah is a twin sister of Charleston, with its vendors chanting, She crab, she crab. When the wind blows in Savannah, there is a staccato rattle on the palmetto trees. In an old house near the center of town, a bachelor lives alone. His houseboy serves him sparse meals, and he is always served alone. On those rare occasions when guests are a necessity, he eats in his study, always alone. When a friend questioned him about this peculiarity, he answered, I dislike to eat under the scrutiny of others. This incident has stuck in my mind for years, because this gentleman seems so un-Georgian. This peculiarity was accepted without too much surprise, because there are plenty of town characters in this state. But he is the only Georgian I know of who does not dote on gathering his kin and friends, letting out all the leaves of his table, serving them the birds of his hunting, and offering them the best that his purse can afford. Although we have our share of eccentrics, I know very few Georgians who do not love fellowship, good hunting, food, and laughter, who do not enjoy life.
0: And of course, that immediately reminds me of Truman Capote, A Christmas Memory, oh, my, right. it's fruitcake weather. <laughs> That's right.
2: That's right. And, you know, they grew up. There was not not that great of a distance from Monroeville, Alabama, and uh, Columbus, Georgia. It's a very you know, short drive, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, I think, between uh, Monroeville and, uh, and Columbus. So culturally, they grew up. And, you know, the town of Monroeville may be a little bit smaller than uh, Columbus, but they grew up in very much the same sort of cultural milieu. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that you know fruitcakes are so important uh, to the two of them. You know there was a great rivalry between the between the two of them because Carson often thought uh, Truman lifted things from her, and in fact that story, the Christmas uh, the Christmas memory. And another piece of his children on their birthdays were two of the reasons Carson thought he plagiarized her, which led to them never speaking to each other again. Really? Yeah, although he remained good friends with Carson's sister, Rita, who is a magazine editor also in New York, uh, and was responsible for publishing uh, him uh, very early in his uh, his career when she was an editor. But they remained friends But Carson and, uh, and uh, Truman had a falling out and
0: never spoke again. Tell me about Illuminations and Night Glare. You... Were really uh, played a very important role in this in collecting the materials for this unfinished autobiography. What's interesting to me as a starting point for this part of our conversation, I think, is all of the work you did. I believe on Carson McCullers, you did in the aftermath of her death. You never did, of course. You you would not have dealt with her at any point because by the time you came along, she had died. Yes,
2: that's right. But I was lucky enough. Through all of my uh, research to meet, from let's say the early 1990s uh, until now, I've been able to meet all the people who were significant uh, in her life who were still living. Um, and uh, you know, I've I've most of them have now passed away. I've met you know Dr. Mary Mercer, who was her physician, and and. Uh, best friend toward the end of her life. And through them and learning so much about her, I, I have the strange sense that I know her very, very well, as if I had known her uh, in person, but never, mm. never having met her. her she died uh, when I was only four years old.
0: Was there a general consensus among the people who had known her about the kind of person she was? Did they all reflect upon her in similar ways in terms of how she approached life? I, I think so, and, and the people, um,
2: Carson was, to, to be frank, a very needy person, um, but what people got out of being in in uh, close contact with her and being friends with her and being loved by her or loving her, um, far uh, more than made up for any difficulty that she might have presented to people because of this uh, neediness. In some ways, she... she um, was a sort of helpless soul, Any, anything from never having learned to cook in her life to never having have to take care of herself. Her mother was with her until she was well into her, her adult life, and then she always had people around her. She was lucky enough to always have people around her to sort of take care of her, mostly because of these medical problems that she had. So she was always very dependent on people, and the type of people who could put up with that and sort of thrive in a relationship of that sort with her... Uh, all sort of, because they maybe were similar that way, they were able to have that kind of relationship, they all sort of recounted the same uh, type of, uh, of uh, personality.
0: I'm interested, based on what you're saying, in just the first couple of sentences of uh, Illumination and Night Glare, as, if, as you've uh, uh, included them in this collection of her work, because it seems to me in two sentences sums it all up. My life has been almost completely filled with work and love, thank goodness, Work has not always been easy, nor has love. May I add? <laughs> no, that's a great way to open the autobiography
2: because it, and it also mirrors the title of uh, of the autobiography as well: illumination and night glare, because both for work and love, she had moments of illumination. In work, that would mean when you know a moment of inspiration would come to her, or in love, an illumination would be when she would m- meet someone and know that they were someone that uh, she could love, and night glare, of course. Um, In the work world would be when her work wasn't going well. Any writer knows uh, that when work isn't going well, it can be uh, uh, quite a nightmare. And then uh, uh, in love, when the relationships that she thought would last or thought would uh, be uh, perfect for her when they went south or when they didn't go well, uh, she captured both sides Uh. of uh, both the positive and negative parts of both work and love.
0: On August fifteenth, 1967, she had her final stroke. She was comatose for, I think, 40 some days and died in uh, what, Nyack Hospital in New York? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Um, 50 years old. So, Carlos, having spent so much time studying Carson McCullers, um, absorbing her work, uh, putting it together in this wonderful collection of uh, stories, plays, and other writings, how do you reflect? On uh, who she was in in American literature of the twentieth century.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think she's uh, one of the most important figures in American literature of of the twentieth century, and one measure of that is um, at the turn of the millennium, uh, they ask a huge number of uh, of scholars and writers, intellectuals, uh, book reviewers, uh, critics, to. Uh, come together to create a list of the most important books of the 20th century. James Joyce's Ulysses came out as number one. Um, The woman who was highest on the list was Virginia Woolf, and it was at number 17 or so. And Carson's The Heart of the Lonely Hunter was the second highest rated book by a woman on the list and was number 18, right behind uh, Virginia, Virginia Woolf. And I think it's because she was incredibly courageous to stick to her guns about the, and be emotionally honest about the things that she thought were fundamental to us. And I think lots of writers were afraid to address that directly for fear of being considered sort of overly emotional or overly romantic. Um, and she simply never hesitated for a moment to address these issues that you and I have been talking about uh, That were so important in her work, the idea of loneliness, the idea of the need for love and the search for love and how painful it is when that uh, doesn't work and how devastating it can be when that uh, that doesn't work. Um, A lot of writers would make a more philosophical or intellectual turn in response to those kind of issues, but Carson didn't. Um, She wanted to keep it sort of purer and more honest a consideration uh, in her work. And I think in the long run uh, that's ultimately why uh, her work will survive because she had this unflinching, direct, honest approach to these things that are very fundamental. Uh, I agree with her that they were they're absolutely at the heart of who we are as people. This need for some sort of attachment beyond our ourselves. And um, other writers have come at that idea. From a more philosophical or more intellectual uh, uh, angle, but she wanted to hit it uh, directly and uh, as honestly and openly as possible.
0: Carlos Dews, uh the collection is Carson McCullough's stories, plays, and other writings. It's the complete stories of Carson McCullough's, uh, as well as Member of the Wedding, The Sojourner, The Square Root of Wonderful Essays, Poems, and her autobiography. It's really been a pleasure talking to you about uh, this real Georgia treasure, Carson McCullers. Thank you so much, Carlos. Thank you very much, Bill. Carlos Dews is the editor of McCullers Stories, Plays, and Other Writings. The book is a collection of all of her short stories and also contains some of the writings we talked about on our show, the script from the play McCullers wrote based on her novel, The Member of the Wedding, her unfinished autobiography, Illumination and Night Glare, and the essay Great Eaters of Georgia. We first aired our show with Carlos Deuce in February 2017. The voice you heard reading from McCullers' work was that of our much-missed former producer, Lisa Clark. We're going to take a break now, but when we come back, We'll hear a musical tribute to Carson McCullers from singer-songwriter Suzanne Vega. to Two Way Street. We've been talking about the life and career of Columbus, Georgia native Carson McCullers. We're going to conclude our show with a musical tribute to McCullers from singer-songwriter Suzanne Vega. Vega discovered McCullers' work when she was in high school.
1: I discovered Carson McCullers when I was in my teens. And uh, I was really interested in short stories. And I read a short story of hers called Sucker. Everything about her drew me in. First of all was her androgyny. She wrote from a male perspective or she wrote from female perspectives. I liked the way she looked because that reflected the same thing, a kind of non-girly aesthetic. The fact that she was from the deep south, especially in the time that she comes from, it colored the cadence of the characters, of the speech of the characters that she wrote about. They're kids who really have it rough and who uh, are are struggling to, to dream and to make a life for themselves, and that felt very universal
0: to me. Late last year, Vega released an album called Lover Beloved. The songs are based on McCuller's characters and stories. She and co-writer Duncan Cheek incorporated passages from McCullough's writings into the lyrics. So as we leave you today, we'll play one of the songs from that album. It's called Miss Amelia. It's based on the protagonist in The Ballad of the Sad Café.
1: On any southern afternoon, if anyone would care to look, a face appears inside a house. A terrible face, it looks sexless and white. It is dim like the faces in dreams.
0: That's it for this week's show. Our producer is Olivia Rheingold. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. I'm Bill Niget, see you again for another two-way street next week.
1: Once Miss Amelia married a man, she married Marvin Macy no one could understand. She must have done it for the presents because she didn't like him much. And even on their wedding night, she wouldn't let him touch. Well, he hung around the doorways acting foolish with bliss until he came too close one day. She swung once with her fist. Miss Amelia was a strong woman. She was big and tall. Swung once and Marvin Macy, he fell against the wall. Now Miss Amelia